Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Hello, and another hello to our worldwide listeners. Now, when I recorded this intro, which was at the beginning of May 2019, we had just over 55,000 listens in about, I think, seven months. So the podcast is doing pretty well. It's, it's quite exciting. We're top 15 on, on iTunes for a short period of time, which is great. Uh, so thank you for listening. Yep, you. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And look, I hope you appreciate the value that the guests bring. I hope that they are bringing you value. You know, I hope they're bringing you things that are of interest to you. Now, on today's podcast, we have Jonathan Ioannou. Now, when we recorded this, he was, I don't know, like 3,000 miles all the way across the world. And he's running a property business and it's not burning down without him. He's still coping, enjoying a holiday. Yeah, he's he's doing bits of work on the holiday, but isn't it nicer to do some work on a beach in Vietnam than it is on a rainy day in Sutton Coldfield, you know? So he's he's definitely constructed quite a nice level of freedom and built quite a nice cash flow for himself. Now, he, at one point, you know, before the podcast, he secured 14 deals in 18 months, right? And they weren't just buy-to-lets or kind of smaller things. They were some pretty big deals in there, which he talks about in the in the podcast. He also talks about getting lease options and actually talks about getting vendor finance, which is like a huge unicorn that, you know, courses want to tout all the time. How many people actually get it? Well, it's quite an interesting story as to how Jonathan achieved it and how it it's such a an amazing situation to be in. Uh, we also talk about building relationships with agents and, you know, Jonathan has lots of HMOs. So we do talk about his HMO playbook, how we can, you know, organize things in a HMO to suit the target market and to provide, you know, a great living environment for people, but also to produce a good amount of profit for the landlord. Jonathan, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hey, Tej, how you doing? I am doing really well. Tell everyone whereabouts in the world you are right now. <laughs> um, in Vietnam at the minute. I don't want to make anyone jealous or anything. I'm not. <laughs> but yeah, in Vietnam. Wow. So, and then I guess this also highlights how awesome technology is, right? That you're sounding mm-hmm. pretty clear and the connection's pretty good and we're, you know, halfway across the world. So, yeah. you know what, I've, I've been following you on, I think I started off on Facebook. I think I saw you in YPN magazine and then obviously been looking at your, your holiday pictures in on Instagram. So before we get into property and what like you're doing in property, what were you doing before that? What was your career or life like before? Um, okay, so I don't want to bore anyone to death uh, if they've already kind of heard about me. So I'll I'll keep it kind of short, relatively short anyway. Um, but I wanted to be well. I always wanted to be in property. So I went to uni, did the whole uni thing as everyone does, uh, and I, I decided to study architecture because I thought it was a nice kind of nice way in. And also it was quite a well-paid job, so that was kind of two birds one stone thing. Um, and then I left uni and I couldn't get a job anywhere. It was absolutely abysmal. I, I think I sent about 500 CVs off or something like that. It was crazy. Um, and I couldn't get a job, one that was paid, that was paid anyway. I got two unpaid job offers. 
Um, so I sat there while I was going to job seekers and wondered what other jobs could I do that would get me into property. Um, so this was 2000 and I'm going to say 11. I'm going to say 11. It might, be, it might have been 12. but So that was the kind of the dates that it was. So um, the other jobs, well, I came up with a couple of ideas. One was going on to the tools, which in hindsight would have been okay, but not the, not the best idea. And the other, jo- the other job that I thought I could pursue was uh, being an estate agent. So I became an estate agent, which lasted three months. Not a very long time. <laughs> Did really well, as you can tell. Um, yeah, but while I was there, I met um, I met a, an investor, a local investor, who kind of, he came in one day, he talked to me about what he did, and he was offering crazy, crazy money on all these houses. You know, we had like houses on the on the books at like 80 grand, and he was offering 50 grand. And I was like, what the hell is this guy doing? This is weird. Who would offer 50 grand? That's the most embarrassing thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but anyway, so I started talking to him a fair bit, and, and I became really good friends with him. And then uh, I ditched the estate agency after three months and became a surveyor, junior surveyor, um, did sort of costing, did my, um, did the energy assessor the uplift to the, to the sort of my architect's degree. So it kind of bolted together and I was doing costings for um, small, small construction work, you know, house builds, that kind of thing, just uh, working under someone. So I did that for a year and a half. And then the investor that I spoke to while I was at the estate agency, he, uh, he got in touch with me and asked me whether I'd be interested in being a property sourcer, which I had no idea what it was. Um, but that's how like I kind of went in. So um, I was a property sourcer then up until probably early 2018. Um, well, working for that company, I was the branch manager and stuff. And that was a portfolio building company. So uh, sourced a lot of property for people. Um, I think last time we counted, it was more than 300 that I'd sourced and played a part in in kind of design and managing. And these were HMOs, single lets, all that kind of stuff. So those, those were for armchair investors. Um, and then in 2014, I bought my first house and that's where it all kind of started for me. Yeah. So you kind of got a taste of it, you know, being an estate agent, got a, a, a bigger taste of being a surveyor. I mean, have they both been useful as a property investor or was yeah, the sourcing a lot 100%. more? Yeah. No, hundred percent. I don't think I would have got the job as a source if I hadn't done the surveying job. Um, so that was kind of, for the for the person that that hired me as the sourcer, the surveying bit was was gold dust really because I I could go in and understand how to cost things um, without being taught. You know, I could hit the ground running um, with the costing, which was a it's a huge it's a huge part of sourcing, right? Knowing how much things are going to cost. Mm. Um, yeah, so that was yeah really important, I think. Okay, so before we go into like what you know, twenty fourteen onwards. You're sourcing mm-hmm. about 300 properties. You you know how to source, right? That that's clear. Yeah. But for anyone who is either new to like sourcing or deal packaging, or even just wants to find a property for themselves, what what are some advice or some tips you can give them for how to source properties? Okay, so um, that was over like five years, by the way. Caveat, <laughs> you know. <laughs> still, hey, it's still a lot. It's still a lot. Oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. But those were all from estate agents as well. So um, what I've learned though, so me buying my own portfolio, um, I would say probably 70% of those purchases have been direct to vendor. Whereas for that company, um, pretty much 95 or 99% of the, of the properties were, uh, were from estate agents. So top tip really is know exactly what you're looking for. Um, because the amount of people I speak to and they don't actually know what they're looking for, whether that's, um, in terms of actual sort of financial terms, whether it generates X a month or this kind of thing, or whether it you can pull out a certain percentage of what you're putting in, or whatever it is that makes the deal stack for you, you need to know that. So going into it, you understand when to pull the trigger because speed's just so important. If you can turn things around quick, that's what's going to get you the deals, especially when working with estate agents. 
So then, yeah, the other the other thing, so the other top tip would be to um, to work with agents as much as possible. But bear in mind that uh, most of the deals will come from agents, but the best deals will be direct to vendor. So you need to kind of think about that and leverage the direct to vendor as much as you can. I appreciate there's not a lot of direct to vendor leads out there. Um, of course, there isn't. This is isn't an easy kind of thing to do. If it were, everyone would be well. There'd be no housing crisis if, if this was an easy <laughs> thing to do. If buying buying houses cheap was easy. So, um, so yeah, direct to vendors very hard by comparison to working with agents. But the better deals will come from direct to vendor, which I'm sure everyone knows anyway. So, yeah. yeah. And when it comes to working with agents, you're saying work with them a lot. Is it a case of viewing the right properties with them, calling, emailing, visiting every week, or is there something maybe different you do, or is that the kind of blueprint for how to build a relationship with them that's it i mean the blueprints and and i've bear in mind i've been the agent so i know the kind of you know i know exactly what happens in those kind of offices um they're not scary people they're all lovely people it's to get on their side it's all about time it's all about time saving so what i spoke about a minute ago about speed so if you can if you can view the house once you know take photos you don't have to go back always always be there always offer on everything um you know, they'll pick the call up to you. So they'll pick the phone up, sorry, to, to call you. So it's all about turning things around quickly. If they need some documents, so if you put an offer in and they say, you know, I need the driver's license, I need all this kind of thing, proof of funds, don't wait two days to send it, like send it straight away, show that you're hot, you know, and, and that's what gets you, that's what gets you in the door. That's what gets you the, the return calls it's about being on top of things. Um, but definitely, you know, speak to them as much as you can. Um, we used to have a file system where we used to chase, so we used to call them or go into office um, it was either every week or every other week we'd nip in. I'd take some chocolates or some Millie's cookies or something and sit down and go through the ones that we'd offered on, speak about them, see how they were doing, you know, have they fell through, what's going on, that kind of thing. Always touching touching base with them. So it really doesn't take long to, to develop a relationship with those kind of things. With mm. those, yeah, doing those kind of things. Yeah, no, solid advice. And on that kind of like proof of funds and ID, what I've done or what I do now is I send it, you know, pretty much, in first contact i'll I'll book in a viewing email them separately and say hey by the way just just keep this on file here's my id here's everything because i'm I'm gonna offer you know here's the money i'm not messing around so maybe that's something people can try as well is just just get out of the way you know don't have any don't let them have any any doubts right um exactly so I want to. I do want to touch on direct to vendor, but let's let's go mm-hmm. back to your story because I'm sure direct to vendor will, will naturally come into it as we talk about your deal. So, your first property in 2014. Talk me through that. Was it your own money? What were the figures like? Where was it? Yeah, it was it was my own money, my own hard graft, <laughs> years and years <laughs> of saving. But it was um it was a really good deal actually. It was a deal that was bought. I bought whilst working. So I was allowed to buy X, you know, a certain amount of properties a year. I can't remember what it was. I think it was one every quarter from the stock that we died sourced. That was the deal that I had as part of my contract. So this was the first deal I picked up. It was a property in Nottingham. Do you know not you know Nottingham at all? Not fairly well. I'm sure some of the listeners will. Yeah, so it's it's in Beeston. Uh, it's part of a council, an ex council estate in Beeston. So a lot of them are privately owned now. Um, but it was a house there. Uh, I bought it for 55k. And I'm saying that now, it's like, whoa, that's crazy. Um, that I mean, it was crazy at the time. So what I didn't quite understand. So I was always really, really, um, I always underestimated um, on the on the end val. Better to be conservative than to over. So on this particular deal, I'd put it down at being worth about 90K done up, something like that. Okay. I needed everything doing to it. Um, but yeah, I, but fast forward six months, I actually got that revalued at, I think I got it valued at 95 Ooh. first six months but what happened was virgin turned around and said it's it's worth more because comps were at 120 so virgin's like it's worth more but 
it's been six months. So we're not willing to lend any more than 95 on this. So mm. I ended up taking the 95 and refinancing it again. <clears throat> Excuse me. Refinancing it again. I think it was two years later for 135. So wow. that, that was the real valuation. Yeah. So I bought that for 55, which is crazy, right? Mm. Um, I think I spent about 12K on it because I did a lot of the work myself on Saturdays and Sundays and things. So I really didn't spend a lot of money on it and I got, you know, pulled in favors and things like that. So that whole project, I think by the time it was rented and moving um, and I'd refinanced it, I'd put 18 and a half thousand pounds back in my pocket and I kept the house. So um, that was a crazy good deal. That was the first deal. And then um, from there, I kind of moved on up. So I did a flip and the flip gave me enough money to buy my first HMO. And then that was in just before stamp duty came in. Um, so I think it's 2016 when I bought that HMO. That was a six bed. Yeah. And then that the rest is history. <laughs> and then what made you say, I mean, it might be the kind of usual thing of more cash flow, but what made you go from a buy to let, which was a pretty, pretty tasty deal, a flip to then go straight into a HMO after sort of one or two deals? So that was the natural progression I saw. I think it's really important with this that people go through the same, not the same progression, but people go through that kind of progression. So they understand what, what it is, the, the whole property thing. So they understand like what it is to be a landlord and what it takes and what a refurb uh, involves and all that kind of thing. But I'd wanted to buy HMO. I just didn't have the opportunity at the start. I didn't have the cash in the pocket to, at the start um, to, to buy one. So then when one, and it was really strange how one came about, but one just sprung up, sprung on me um a really good deal I, I sort of bit the hand off and I had the cash ready to go at that point so I just saw it as a natural progression in property um and and yeah obviously cash flow played, played a massive part in that otherwise I would have done another single there but um yeah right right time all, all the kind of all these contributing factors kind of just gelled together and it, it happened and that was the first one that I bought yeah wow okay so then gone from one buy to let one flip one hmo so now we're in just the tail end of April 2019. What does your portfolio look like right now? So it's just got that one single letter and the one HMO. That's all it had uh, at that time. But that was that was still, um, I think that was generating, I mean, a single let made £300 and the, the HMO was £1,200, £1,300 at the time. So, you know, still £1,500 from two properties, which was great at the time. Um, and that was just stacking up and I wasn't touching that. Those were both bought in my own name um personal name and then i yeah so then i well i went on to a i went on to property course uh to the mastermind one um and obviously i've got quite a lot of kind of experience so i was quite a good um inve investment i think is, is the t yeah so I, I was kind of i could show that i was competent with doing these kind of things so that gave me a lot more opportunity really so um i did yeah did, did a few deals on there i think we did 14 in a year on that, on that one. Wow. So you have 14 deals yourself from going on that course. Yeah, just before, so that was probably probably 6 months before 2018, so probably actually 18 months we did just over 14 deals, yeah. So and some big ones as well, not like um yeah, not not really. So tell me ones. tell me about some of those big ones. So well the first deal I actually did with a JV partner just before I'd got on there, I I did uh, my first JV which was hilarious because it was a 10 bedroom ensuite property in Derby. Wow. That was the first deal that I did with, yeah, that was my first JV as well, which is quite funny. Really. <laughs> um, so I did that. Um, and I think we bought that for 205 K spent about 120 and there was some other embodied costs 
furnishings, you know, bits and bobs, stamp duty and all that kind of thing. But that was a really good deal because we got vendor finance from the other side. So we got an £85,000 loan back at 6% from the owner on a first charge um, to start with. So uh, we ended up getting that refinance at 435. Um, I think wow. It, yeah, it's good, good margin. I think we only left about 15K in there. Um, and I can't remember what it grows. It's, it's well over the 55 grand it grows, but it, it, it does generate about £2,000 net, roughly. I think that's after everything's paid. In fact, it's more than that. It's about two and a half. So that was the first JV I did um, with, with a guy that I met before Mastermind. And then going on to Mastermind, we had, um, I'd already got like, him him as a, an investor to go and then other investors came to me at that point so that's where it really kind of took off for me and then so vendor finance that's something that a lot of people talk about and it's you know it sounds incredible because it, it it is but it's a myth <laughs> yeah how how did you because you're the first person i've got on the show i think who's actually used vendor finance no you're the second okay how how did you small club yeah it's a very small club how did you like negotiate it with the seller and like t- tell me how you worked it out with them okay so um so funny one really so i went in there and you should never do this this is like rule one from sourcing i went in there what what happened was that deal was so good a friend of mine actually sourced that so i didn't source that a friend of mine sourced it and it was so big he didn't want to do it so he said look you've got a guy who really wants to invest with you why don't you take this deal and you owe me one so I did give him one back later on, but that that's how that kind of came to, came to be. And then before that actually happened, we both walked around together and we were trying to figure out how we could make this work between me and him. And we didn't have any money to do it. So all of our money was elsewhere, you know, and we were like, how can we do this project? And um, I became, I built a rapport with the guy. The owner was really, really nice. And he was, int- he was just invested in us and he wanted us to do well. We were young lads and he, he was an older uh, older gentleman he just he just wanted it in safe hands so i'd gone in with a preconceived idea of what the best deal for us would be which was a lease option a purchase lease option which meant we didn't have to put any money in at the start we could kind of run it and make some money and then move forward with it the problem with a 10 bedroom house because it was already a 10 bedroom house was there wasn't a lot of mortgage products available i think there was only one kind of available at the time that would let us use it off the peg so to speak so um so yeah, I was trying to push on to him, this purchase lease option. His name was Derek. And he said, uh, he just stopped me. I was sat on his stairs and he just stopped me. He said, Jonathan, stop. This sounds weird. I don't want to do it. <laughs> and he said, he just looked at me and said, what's the problem? And I said, look, it's a 10 bedroom house. We're really struggling to find a mortgage company that can lend the money because of all this. He's like, I had the same problem. I had the same problem. He said, what, what do you need? Do you need money? And I was like, well, I, I don't know. Yeah, well, we, you know, we, we wouldn't need money to do it. Yeah. So he said, look, why don't, why don't I just lend you some money? And I was like, okay, okay. So you lend us money. And then oh, we worked the rate out, but he thought he was getting an absolute steal at eight, at 6%. And uh, we know that 6% is super cheap money. So that was, that was crazy good. And there was not a lot of hoops to jump through to get it. Um, but that's how it came to be. He offered to do that for us um, because I was trying to force a purchase lease option down his neck. <laughs> he didn't want to do it. <laughs> So, so that's what happened um wow uh, going yeah so i learned from that not to have any preconceived idea of what the best outcome is for me because that's the wrong way to go into these kind of things the, the best outcome is the outcome that wins for them and then you build the deal around that so that's i should have gone in and said how can this work and you know it still worked out really well but learnings going forward is is that's the way it should have been yeah I yeah have gone i in think with that idea i think you know, support and what i say to people is don't kind of necessarily 
go into a property with a strategy in mind just go in with a toolkit of i can offer these these 10 things purchase these yeah. options rent to rent whatever it is and say look what what works for you as a vendor what works for us which of these exactly. you know 10 tools can we use to fix this problem so but mm-hmm. at the same time the, a lesson a positive lesson from that is speak to the vendors make you know build a relationship because yeah yeah you tried to shove a lease option down his throat but the fact that you spoke to him meant that this opened up something which you know, if someone, if if I was buying a house of someone and they said, "Hey, why don't I lend you my money to buy my house off me?" I'd be like, "Sure, as long as it works for <laughs> yeah. you." Like that sounds that sounds weird, but I'll take it. Like yeah. it, it, so that's pretty cool. Okay, so you have that HMO, which is a ten bed. So that's, you know, yeah. I, I've always so with HMOs, you know, I get with four or five beds. It's kind of you know. I can understand more why people would live there. They're smaller. There's less humans to to cause irritation. You know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 10 people how have you found filling it and what kind of tenants have you got in it difficult uh <laughs> professional so but we in our portfolio they all seem to be beastly so one of so one of the jv partners that i have his main um main buying criteria was that it netted him over a thousand pound a month so bear in mind if you're working at 50 50 that means that you've got to pull in Oof. two thousand pounds a month right so not a lot of smaller buildings are going to do that so especially the six beds aren't going to do it you may get a seven bed that does it but the eight beds is where that would work for him. So in terms of the portfolio, we've got um, we've got two eight beds, we've got a nine bed, a 10 bed, and that's with him. So um, so yeah, some really big buildings. So we've learned that the 10 beds, they're, they're not really a social, we've tried as hard as possible to, to make them sociable. So uh, the finishes and all that kind of thing, we try and make them sociable, but they're not as sociable as the six bedroom houses. So it's definitely different. Um, we've got a nine bed on the market at the moment, People are taking that because literally because it's cool inside. So they're looking at smaller houses and they're saying the, the kind of feedback I've had with the letter agent I spoke to him earlier on is this house is really big, but it's really nice. And I, I really like how cool it is. And, you know, the graffiti and stuff that we do, that's a little bit different. They've gone for it despite it being a bigger house and them not wanting to live in a bigger house. They've gone with it because of the finish, which I 100% agree with. I mean, when I was at uni, I wouldn't want to live in a, in a 10 bedroom house. So it'd be pretty horrible, I think. Yeah. Okay. So then you you bought those fourteen deals. Now, when it comes to finding JV partners and investors, you know, again, it's one of those things that, especially when people are new in property, it's quite daunting to think, oh, how are you going to find them? And I, I know you had sort of maybe more access through your mastermind, but if someone didn't have that and they didn't want to go on a course for whatever reason, how could people find others to JV or or to invest in them with? Okay. Um. Just before the 14 deals, I had uh, I did do two rent to rent and one PLO. So we only bought we bought 11, but they were 11 big ones. Um, so JV finance, I I get asked a lot like how can I how can I find the money? And I I I'm a strong believer um, that anyone starting starting off in property shouldn't be looking to borrow money. Um, I really think that you should prove that you're competent at doing this kind of thing, and then search for the money. You know because if you're going around trying to get money, you're going to scare it away. 100% you're going to scare it away. Whereas if you, you're you going into a, a venue and you've got a you've got a product that works, you know, you've got something, uh, you, can, you can show proof of concept that this works. So whether that's a rent to rent or whatever it is, a single let that's worked, you've just done something previously, then you've got more chance of finding JV investment because you can show someone that you're capable of doing this kind of thing. If you don't have that, I think it's going to be super difficult. Because I mean, that's like me just going to my friend and saying, let me a hundred K I'm going to become a stockbroker or I'm going to start trading and then them going, okay, 
you know, you've got your head screwed on. That makes sense. I'll, I'll lend you money. It's just not going to happen. So whereas if I went to him and said, look, I've done 10 trades or whatever it is, I've done years worth of trades. Here's my, um, here's my portfolio. Here's how much it's gone up with. Do you want to lend me hundred K? Well then that might be a little bit different because I can show him that I'm, I'm capable of doing this kind of thing. I'm not, you know, I've got a better chance of success. That's, that's the way I, I see it with JV finance. Yeah. I think I've take, you know, personally taken the same approach I've, I've had to search for investment for my first deal, but it, it's ended up being, you know, a family member loaning me money. And I think once you have that example, right, that you, even, even if it's just one or two, you can say, look, exactly. I, I can do this. Like you can trust me because look, there, there's some bricks and mortar there. That is mine. Exactly. Um, that yeah. I've kind of done. Okay. And that, that and the family, gone. what you just said, sorry uh, to interrupt, Tej, but the, exactly that the family is family, friends. They are the perfect place to start with the JV finance because you've got more trust there. You've got more rapport. That's, that's the perfect place to start. And then, but then if you're going outside of that circle, that's when the, the competency kind of needs to come in. So you've done it exactly the way that, you know, you, you really should do it. No, fair enough and there's no acceptance fee and title guarantee fee all this rubbish you get from exactly. bridges as well so it's a yep. lot easier um so <laughs> you mentioned one of the deals was a purchase lease option mm-hmm. tell me about that because again that's something that people hear about read about but not you know it's not as common as obviously just buying a house so how did that work out no the unicorns they are <laughs> they're really hard to find purchase lease options so um that came about at a really weird time actually i've just come back from a holiday and i was listening to books on the plane i was super pumped to kind of get some stuff going so um i the way that i source the way that i source some rent to rents and the purchase lease option was to cold call people i don't know if you've ever come across that mm-hmm. okay. um, who would you be cold so, calling so what i'd do is i'd sit and i'd develop uh so as you would develop your hmo list i'm sure a lot of people mail shot out to hmos mm-hmm. um you do, i develop other lists uh, so, for example, for a purchase lease option or a rent to rent, you can develop that in, in a few different ways. The, the easiest way is to go on spare rooms, take the data, you know, scrape the data from spare rooms for the rooms that look like you could add the value to them. Uh, Gumtree is a good place to start because you direct a vendor on most of them. And then just sit there and call them one after another and, you know, do the whole spiel. You're offering guaranteed rent, all that kind of thing. So that's how that deal came to be. That was off Gumtree. It was a house that was, well, it looked like a saw film set, you know, like a chair in the middle of the room. That was the picture. £50 a week for students, a four-bedroom HMO. Um, spoke to the landlord, asked him whether he'd be interested in guaranteed rent. And then we got talking a little bit more, asked him what his plans were for the property. I said, you know, where do you imagine being in five years' time of this property? And he said, Jonathan, I just want to sell it. But I sold one this year and capital gains would kill me, so I'm not going to bother. So I said, well, look, is there not a way? Well, I said, in fact, I said, if there's a way where I can buy this contractually, you know, all done with solicitors, all done with contracts, in a set time whilst renting it in between, would, you, would that be something you want to do? And he said, yeah, you know, let's have a chat. And that's where that came from. Um, yeah. So that's, that's the way you develop those lists. You can do it other ways. So um, student areas, some student areas aren't allowed like notice boards up. So you can walk around and sometimes there's, um, sometimes there's a, uh, an A4 sheet of paper in the window with the, the phone number on for the landlord. So you can, you can add those to the list. You can cold call those especially sort of uh, September time, October time, if the, all the lights are off and stuff, you know, it's very, it's very likely they've not had, uh, had tenants this academic year. So they'll be, they'll be absolutely, you know, bricking it. So, you know, good time to call is at that point. Um, so yeah, develop those lists and then mm. keep chasing and chasing and chasing and, and narrow the list down and down and down until you get the deal. Wow. So essentially, you know, putting in the work, just like with viewing, just getting a list of, of contacts, properties, whatever it is, narrowing it down, mm-hmm. 
failing a hundred times and then getting that one potential, yeah. which will probably <laughs> exactly end up failing that. and then, yeah, carry on to you. Yeah. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. So then once you'd finished buying these, these deals and, and, you know, to rent to rent and the purchase lease option, what kind of cash flow profit was, was all of your portfolio bringing you in at that point? That's a great question. Um, off the top of my head at that point, sort of mid 2018, it must have been about seven, seven to eight K net, something like that. And then that, that point. And then that was yours. And then there was probably maybe another amount that was going to a JV partner. Yeah. So, um, so bear in mind, I've, I've got my own sort of portfolio, but then the rooms with the JV partners, which are, I think total about 40, 40, maybe a little bit more, 40, 45 rooms with, with JV partners, not just one, but with JV partners. Um, yeah. So that would be, including them um since that since the middle of that year that was just including those rents and rents and things um we've we've got to over 10k so well well over 10k so yeah i couldn't ask for couldn't ask for more really and then so so what does your portfolio look like right now so we've just hit i think it's 108 rooms now wow and obviously i've got this, got the lovely single let still bubbling in the background um <laughs> yeah you say wow but that's not a good thing really the hmo market's changing quite a lot um it's massively changing and I don't want to be in a position whereby I'm living off purely a HMO, uh, where, you know, a HMO income, uh, with all of this stuff happening within the HMO world. So when I get back, I'm scratching now to, to do property, but when I get back, I will be diversifying quite a lot. And, and that's into single lets into small kind of commercial buildings. That's the plan. And what, so tell me about those challenges in the HMO market. So I haven't got HMO yet. I'm planning on getting a few, but after I bought a few by to let's to basically do what you're doing now, which is diversify. But for anyone listening, what are these challenges that um, people are going to face in the HMO market? Um, so, well, other than it's, it's mainly saturation. So, I mean, I'm sure you've not spoke to anyone that just does single lets for a long time. Um, that That's just happened. That's gone. You know, we've gone through this kind of process where, Everyone's learned about the HMO model and the HMO is a fantastic model. So everyone's begun pursuing that um, whereby, you know, five years ago, probably one out of 10 was looking at HMOs and now everyone wants HMOs. So, of course, that's going to have an impact on on the on the houses. Block. I mean, it's, it's, it would be silly not to not to think that's going to affect it. Um, and it started affecting it now. Most places that are the places that are worst affected are the places without the, the Article 4 uh, directive in place because they, those are open markets you know the article four places are uh, a mature closed markets diff- more difficult to get into more costly so they're not as hurt at the minute as far as i can tell um but other places they're, they're struggling uh voids wise and things like that yeah so so that's and, that's what's happening i mean do you think that you know because some people would say to that you know well we're just going to design the best quality rooms looking the best feeling the best netflix yeah. all of that stuff yeah. and we're going to get people yeah. in do you think that's still applicable it's still applicable but at some point those best rooms will become mid-range rooms because everyone's moving up so you know it's of course it, of course that's that's the way i mean that's the way i do it right that's the way i'm a lot of my rooms are like that at the moment but fast forward three years times um someone else will be doing a brand new room and I'm, you know, it's not going to stack if I refurbish this house after three years. So it's just going to have a knock-on effect. Mine will become, I, I would hope, never mid-range, but you know, it will drop down a couple of pegs, and then it will be harder to rent, and you know, so on and so on. So, yeah, 
Okay. That's in, how I, I in, see it at the minute. And in terms of your diversifying, are you going to be selling some HMOs or are you just going to add lots of single lets or flats to your portfolio? I'm just going to be adding. Um, the, the portfolio is a good size. I don't see why anyone would need much more than that kind of size portfolio. The plan for me by the time I'm 35 is to um, hopefully kind of get, not get rid get rid is a horrible word, but remove the joint venture uh, partners from the portfolio. So whether that's replacing them, you know, selling my share to them or, or just slimming down uh, and then paying some debt off. I want to get the, uh, the leverage to around about the 60% across the whole portfolio by the time of 35 and just diversify as much as possible. So in an ideal world, I'd have the same size portfolio, but just all my own properties uh, by the time of 35. And that's in like in, in those years time. And then the diversification would come from single lets. And I really like the idea of uh, commercial units with flats above. So I see that as like a, a sort of a HMO income, but without all the hassle, because you, you know, if you've got a, a commercial space below that's got a long-term lease on i know the i know that you know the, the, the high street's suffering i get that but a long-term lease and then maybe two three flats above that's a good you know if you can you, you can get deals like that for between 150 and 200k um and it, and it pulls in 24k um that's a good that's a good deal yeah i've been looking at some of those actually and i've i've, I've heard yeah. of investors who've like got a, a bit of land or or a little building in starbucks pay them a very healthy or little or someone five years yeah take the keys never see you again money comes in every month and if they mess around it's easy to get rid That's of them. a really cool commercial. strategy yeah exactly yeah I think, really cool i think there was, was it, i think it was little actually put out an advert a few months ago saying we're looking for sites so you know for anyone who's listening and you're kind of thinking oh how can i diversify maybe try and supply to these big companies because it's a lot easier than finding you know little corner shop you know kind of taking a lease on with you right so would you advise people to do what you've done which is get the hmos get the big cash flow get you know um, income replacing salary then diversify or would you say it's better to diversify as you grow i would say diversify as you grow but it all depends It's, it's it's hard for me to say that that's the right thing to do for someone because it all depends on how quickly they need to get there so if someone was desperate to leave their job and they, you know, had two years or so, then then buying single lets is just not going to get them where they want to be. Although, you know, some of the other strategies we spoke about might help uh, diversify along the way, but still HMOs is the only kind of model that will get them there quick enough to, to be able to kind of reach that goal. So it's difficult to say. If I was rebuilding my portfolio, I would definitely do it as I'm going. But I went through a growth phase in a year where we just kept throwing things in and it got a bit manic. So um, I didn't really have that opportunity to do so at the time. Um, you know, if I could swap my portfolio now, if I could swap the HMO single lets and have the same cash flow, I, I would do it in an instant. It wouldn't have to, it would be done. You know, I'd do it straight away. Um, yeah. And you mentioned, thoughts. you mentioned um, you want to, you know, reduce the debt and the gearing by the time you're 35. How old are you now? 28, I have to think then. <laughs> <laughs> So you've you've definitely got a, a bit of time before then. I mean, what has so you know you said you said before you don't see why you know you'd want more than what your property portfolio brings in at the moment in terms of like passive income a month. First question is how passive is passive? It's not passive at all. There's there's no such thing as passive property investment. I wish there was. I'm out here today. I spoke to my letting agent. Um, I, I think that's probably it actually. But 
he's a really good guy. So if I was self-managing, I'd be, well, I wouldn't be on holiday. I tell you that now. Um, HMOs are not passive. The, the only property in my whole portfolio that's passive, relatively passive, um, is the single let. That and trusty that single let, eh? Is golden. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> golden. So um, that's the only one that's that's relatively passive. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those things. You can systemize it. So I've got a VA who does all of my bookings and all of my um, remittance statements and all of the joint venture things. But stuff takes work. You know, it's not, it's not simple. So running the JVs, I'll still have to look over... Uh, the remittance statements and the monthly figures and all of the rental statements, not not as much as I had to before, but I'll still have to cast an eye on that um, and sign things off so that she can send it. But it's not passive. But, you know, I don't I don't want it to be too passive because then I wouldn't really be doing anything. I suppose yeah, I like to feel like I'm part of something. It's definitely more <laughs> passive than a nine to five. Right. Because what you said, of you, course, yeah, you've had to do. It sounds like I mean, well, I'm guessing here, but it could like a couple of hours a day sort of thing, if that. To maintain a portfolio? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm probably doing three, maybe three hours a week at the minute. Something like that. Okay. Max. There we yeah, go. Yeah, not a lot. Not a lot. Yeah. And you the could be doing this. Send... Yeah, yeah. I could be doing this. Yeah. I had to send some documents for a remortgage. That sucked. That was like $37 from Cambodia. That oh, yeah. I, I think you yeah, posted that on Instagram. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was the only thing that was rubbish while out here. But, um, but yeah. So, three. no, don't get me wrong. Three hours is fantastic. But... Um, but the HMO, you know, if I didn't have any HMOs, that would be much easier. Um, and also if I self-manage or if I ha- didn't have as good a manager is what I'm probably trying to allude to. If I didn't have as good a manager, it would be much more time that I'd have to put into that. Because, you know, things like, for example, we had a shower tray crack two days before someone's supposed to move in today. And yeah, so then we've got to pull it off, pull the bottom tiles off. So I've been, I've not been a part of that, but I've kind of said, yeah, do that, do this, that kind of thing in an email. So, yeah. Okay. And then I guess leading on from that, you know, what are you, so obviously you're traveling right now, but when you're in the UK and you're kind of working more actively, what do you do apart from property? If you've kind of reached the level you want to be at with the income, are you doing other businesses, other passions? What are you up to? Yeah. So, um, I do, well, while I've been away, I've had time to reflect on that. I've done a couple of other stuff. So, um, I did a, I've done a playbook. I, so because of my architect background, my design kind of background, um, I enjoy all that kind of stuff. So I've done a PDF document, which has all these plans in. It shows you how to chop up the HMO. I actually sent that to you. So I'm, I, I had a quick that. look at that. It looks incredible. Tell me what you think. Yeah, it's cool. so that's a cool document. So things like that. Um, in terms of actually really like, so before I came away, I was doing four projects nonstop. There was always four on. Uh, if one ever went away, because I did, I did sourcing and uh, project management for people as well. So I always had four projects on. Um, so coming away, I've managed to kind of get away from that. Four projects is quite a lot to manage orders, things like, you know, just all those other stuff kind of managing. Although I'm not project managing on most of them, there's someone that's doing that. I'm still kind of going around once a week, doing the designs, all that kind of stuff. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing. When I get back, I don't know what I'm going to do, actually. Um, I quite like old cars, so I'd like to do one of those up, but yeah. <laughs> that's that's me just you know dreaming about what i can do when i get back of course i'm going to do some property that's the main thing um but it will be a project manager kind of role that'll, that'll, that'll be all i think yeah okay so if you had to summarize in i don't know like two lines what property has given you or allowed you to do what would you say uh well clearly just freedom freedom to freedom to make my own choices freedom to go traveling um to keep a house 
you know, just unoccupied and not worry about it. Um, pretty much freedom. Yeah, that's, that would be the main thing I would say. Mm. Okay. And then, you know, I want to quickly touch, go back to your, your direct vendor piece before. So you've told us about the cold calling, which I think is something that a lot of people may have heard of, but maybe not, maybe not done before, because the most common D to V thing is leafleting. So have you done leafleting? I haven't done leafleting. So, um, so the ways that I've got property before in terms of direct to vendor would be, um, so, you know, those like Facebook groups you've got, um, you know, like Nottingham for sale, that kind of thing. So posting, um, posting things in them, um, you know, like we buy houses, that kind of thing. Um, that's like a leaflet, but you've got a different market. Most people on Facebook now anyway. So if they're part of that group, they'll see that. Um, word of mouth is probably where I've got most of my deals from direct to vendor. Um, so I got a deal, for example, I got a deal from a next door neighbor. Uh, we had a, we were doing a property up. There was some damp on the wall. I wrote this in the blog that I'd done recently. So that's something else I'm doing in my spare time blogging. Um, but we, we, I went nipped around to next door, asked her whether I could look at the wall and started telling her about what I did. So I always try and tell everyone what you do. Um, and you'd be surprised what comes of that. Her sister was selling a house and hated estate agents. So I got a deal from that. <laughs> that was a good one. Obviously the cold calling we spoke about. Um, yeah, well, there's, there's ways to do direct vendor from agents as well. So what you can say, a good way to do it with agents is if you're good, if you're good friends with the agent, obviously, um, make sure you really upfront tell them you're not trying to cut them out. But I always say, look, if, if you can put me in touch with the, the owner here, then maybe a way I can, I can help them more, give them more money. Um, but I need to talk to them about whether that's something they'd want to do. It'd be very, I, I always say it's difficult to go from, from me to you as you're the middleman. I don't want to get anything mixed up. I'd rather just talk to them. So sometimes they put you in touch with them that way. Um, I'm trying to think what else there was. Obviously, the HMO letters is a great way. That's the way that everyone goes at the minute. Um, yeah. Okay. Is, that, is that enough? Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, no, it definitely is. I think, you know what, leafleting is one of those things where I'm, I'm looking at it now and it's costing, I just don't believe how many houses there are in an area. Like I draw a square yeah. on Google Maps and I'm like, what? So it's one of those things where I'm trying to work out the costing and the ROI versus what okay. could the return be. Well, look worth it. And, uh, you know, yeah. I've put some Facebook ads out, like in okay. the area, paid Facebook ads, beta testing some different creative just to see, oh, hey, is it going to work? I don't think the areas I'm looking in, most of the houses are probably probate or older person going into okay. a home. So not sure how much the Facebook ads will work for me, but it's interesting to know about obviously the, the HMO letters, the the cold call, I think is a new one. Um, mm -hmm. I think people should, should definitely try that. But as we're talking about HMOs, so when, and I know you're saying the market's changing, but obviously people are still going to want to get into it in, in various yeah. you know, geographies in the UK. When you are sort of looking for a house to turn into a HMO or when, you know, mm -hmm. or, you know, as you're turning into a HMO, what are some top tips or advice that you can give people, I guess in general about, you know, buying a HMO or buying a property to turn it into a HMO? Okay. So um, obviously you can only do that in the places that aren't, uh, that don't have Article 4 in place, right? So otherwise you turn in a, something that's already running as a HMO. Um, so it would already have that infrastructure there. So in terms of top tips, um, so, well, the, the most important thing is, is just getting the, the most out of the building. And um, often to do that, it's easier to use uh, an architect or someone that knows what they're doing in that sense to get the most out of the building. I appreciate not everyone can do that straight away because it's going to cost them money. So they need to make sure that they, they kind of know what they're doing. So exploring layout options, understanding how things work and how, you know, where and why things would go in certain ways. 
like um, a lot of Victorian buildings, you can move the bathroom from the back in the offshoot, you know, above the kitchen. You can move that to the front if there's two windows, one above the door and like a bay window, you can always fit that in. So that's that's something. It's all about knowing what you can do with the building and what, what you can chop it up and where and how um, to really maximize the most out of the HMO because the more rooms you have, the more money you're going to make, right? In theory. Um, yeah, within within reason. I think that's probably the best bit of advice. Just know how how it works, how to chop things up and, and how you can get the most out of the building um, in terms of conversions anyway, yeah. Okay. And, you know, so I was looking at your social media earlier today as well. And like how much of a positive influence in terms of you know, building a brand, getting investors interested and just getting people interested in you and what you're doing, how useful has social media been for you? It's been huge. I can't believe I started. So the Instagram, I started in January 20, I think it was 2018. Yeah, January 2018 started that. And that was because I went to a, a networking event. And someone was speaking about Instagram and I was like, I can't believe I don't do this. I, I, you know, I've got all these, I've got all these houses where we take professional photos and, and what do we do with them? We put them on spare rooms. They're on the website, of course, but that's it. It's just wasted content really. So um, it's been huge for me. I've got some, uh, some really big, some huge investors come from, from Instagram, from other sources of, uh, of content as well, you know, like the blog and things like that. So um, it's been instrumental, especially while I've been away. So um yeah, I, I mean, I do sort of, I do coaching and mentoring as well. And most of those clients have come from, from Instagram or Facebook. So there's that as well. Um, it's been massive. And also just developing that, that, like you said, that brand. Um, I'm not sure whether mine's too strong, but I, I like to keep the same kind of thing going through the same theme. So no, it's been, it's been instrumental in the whole thing. Okay. And then um, with the, you know, finding investors on Instagram is, Again, it's something that traditionally just wouldn't have happened in business or in property, right? I think it's kind of maybe it's a, you know, over the past, you know, couple of years or something, Instagram has really become like a business platform. What, for people who are starting out on Instagram or even people who have accounts and who regularly use it, what kind of things have you found, if any, particularly attract investors to you? Or is it just your whole brand? I think it's just the whole thing. I don't think so. It's not like I kind of put the fishing hook out there for investors. What all you're doing on social media is is connecting. It's just like networking. So you're just connecting, building relationships, and from that thing, you know, things just come from that. And some of those things happen to be investment. So you know, I've I spoke to someone. I can't remember how long it was for. It may it may have been 10, 10, 11 months before I even knew he had any money. And then he turned around and said, "Why don't we do something together?" That kind of thing. So it's. With, with the whole social thing, it, it's just about giving as much as you can, you know, putting yourself out there um, and, and things will come back. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think when people do put out the hooks for investors, it seems to get less interest than when they're just sort of 100%. documenting yeah. their life. And like you said, connecting yeah. and just it just happens. Right. So people who are you know on Instagram, just keep being yourself, document your journey. You know, if you're on a viewing, take a picture, post it. If you're just a refurb mm -hmm. came through, post it like show people what you're doing because it's so important because exactly. you're not going to connect otherwise exactly. yeah. so last question before we go into the quick fire round is there okay. a resource platform or you know technology or app that you just can't live without i really like um let me know i've got the name you put me under pressure here um i really like this app that i've got that does uh no does notes hold on a second let me get it it's it's wonderlist wonderlist is is great 
I like it because I can assign stuff to my VA and it just, I, I love making lists. That's weird, right? But I like doing that. So there's so many lists on there and I really enjoy doing that and just tagging her in, getting her to do things, setting her dates and things like that. So that's really cool. And then Google Drive, obviously, that's massive. The amount of times I've needed my passport and all this kind of stuff and it's all on there and I don't have to worry about it. Bosh, straight on Google Drive. So those two are, are great. That's smart. I'm going to put my passport on Google Drive now. Okay. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? I use it for like pick all sorts of random stuff, Everything. but okay. That's, that's doesn't work. Even if it's signed by a solicitor, it doesn't work for the, the banks and things. Though. They're not happy with that kind of, uh, yeah, they're not happy with that certification. So all the, the real passport, they suck, right? Yeah. All banks suck. Um, just before we move on to the quick fire as well, we were talking about sourcing mm-hmm. and you, you, you mentioned some stuff and I thought, oh Christ, yeah, there is some other ways. So, you mentioned probate, right? So mm-hmm. um, another way to get good direct to vendor leads is make friends. There's always always a probate solicitor, a specific probate solicitor that have ties with um, funeral directors and all that kind of stuff. Great to make friends with them. Yeah, great to use them because if you tell them what you do, likely that some things will come from that. People that clear houses, they also can find deals because they're clearing out probate houses. Um I've got a guy that does all my clearance for me, takes all the rubbish away. He clears houses as well. And if he ever speaks to anyone that's doing a, a probate and then cause they, they're often clearing them to sell, that's what they're often doing. He says, I've got a guy that buys these. Um, if you want me to put you in touch, I can put you in touch. I've obviously agreed to give him a commission and all that if, if anything comes about. So yeah. And the main thing with all of this is just being so on it and just ruthless that you're prepared to take as much action as possible. So the other way that you can get direct to vendor ones, and the, probably the best way, which I don't even know why I didn't mention, is if you see one of these derelict houses, so you mentioned that you were like going around doing leaflet shots and all that kind of stuff, right? If you just walked around that area and saw a house that you were particularly interested in, it's knocking on the door or it's knocking on the neighbor's door and speaking to them. Nine times out of 10, if the neighbors have got a horrible house and it's in a relatively nice area, they want it sorted as much as the next guy. So they're going to give you as much information as they have. So yeah, I've got some funny stories about things that I've done like that. We can we can get into that at a different time, but they're really good ways. <laughs> that that is a very very good tip. I think just to add to that, if if you know you you knock and no one's useful, you can always go on land registry and and try find the details. Yep. But again, yeah, that might be the house they live in, etc. But no, those are really good tips. I think the knocking on doors is something that I don't know. We just don't naturally think. We see it and we're like, oh okay. Uh, it's not a nice thing to do like, yeah <laughs> you know but but um you've got to just put it yeah you've, you've just got to flick that switch and just put yourself out there it's the same as picking up the phone to do a cold call but you're just it's just face to face i mean you know what are the likelihood what's the likelihood you're going to see them again and they're going to recognize you or you know you're going to see them in the street it's not going to happen so just yeah get it together and just do it even if i've done it before where i've sent letters to someone trying to buy that like asking them about this house it's got squatters in and all this kind of stuff and they just ignore me so I just go around and knock on the door and see what happens. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, I know people have done that and had you know good result. What what is the worst that could happen? You could have a big dog jump out on your face, but you know chances <laughs> are just be a nice person with some, some tea <laughs> yeah. and biscuits make for sure, you. <laughs> make sure you stand like five steps back if you hear a dog there, and then you'll be fine. You I'm gone if I hear a dog barking. <laughs> I love dogs, but I am gone. You know, let, me, let someone else walk in there first. Awesome. So going to hit you with a quick fire round now what sure. are the biggest three mistakes that you've made in property so the biggest three mistakes one uh one would be not reading uh planning acceptance document and not realizing that there were some conditions on there that was a pretty big balls up um <laughs> because that took eight weeks to get the conditions removed in fact it took longer than that it took like four weeks for the guy to come 
and do a soil sample and then it took eight weeks to get it removed and we'd we'd bought it subject to planning and thought we were golden and good to go so that was one two would be trusting a builder too much i worked with a builder for a long time um, i developed a really good relationship with him i actually worked with him for about five years um but in the end i gave him too much too much rope and uh and he he, he messed me around and yeah i think you need to still keep on top of builders no matter what the relationship's like that's really important i'm trying to think of another another way of balls up really but i think those two are so important i think they kind of just consume all of it really so yeah those are the two major mistakes is that okay <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll accept you i'll let you off on this one um and then cool. what are your top three tips for people who are new in property new in property um just pretty much educate, 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 really. Um, there's so much good material. This is one of them, right? So yeah, so much you. good free material out there um, and, and content that you can consume and, and get as knowledge knowledgeable as possible. Um, just get as much of that under your belt as possible. Start developing relationships, going to networking events. Um, you know, develop the black book of contacts as quickly as possible um, and tell everyone what, you, what you're trying to do, what you aspire to do so that they, they know that you're in that space. That's probably the best best bit of advice I can give. Awesome. And then lastly, what are your top or your your sort of biggest three goals for the future? And they can be personal ones, property, career, anything. Okay. Um, I really want to get an old classic car, and I spoke about this. I want to get an old 911. That's one. Um, That'd be cool, right? Yeah, (laughs) really nice. Two is what what we spoke about um, with the, the whole kind of, by the 35, I really want to get that that portfolio down um even if i lose rooms i want i want it to be self-owned so i'm in control of everything that'd be really good um and the main thing would be to to just travel as much as possible um before before i'm too old really i also want to learn some languages i'm trying to learn spanish at the minute Hmm. harder than i thought (laughs) (laughs) okay perfect um jonathan thank you so much for coming on the test talks podcast um I think you should come on in in a year or so and we should do it in spanish because i'm learning spanish as well so we should both just like <laughs> we should set we should be accountable and just totally do it in okay. spanish and then 90 percent of the listeners will not understand it but that's fine because there's a small percentage i'm trying to learn it <laughs> <laughs> there's a small percentage of conversation oh exactly yeah so look thank you so much um this thank has been very me. very interesting i think there's some good nuggets in here that people are not going to have heard before but also you know will kind of give people a sense of realism which is you know it does take hard work but also the fact of where you yeah. are in the world right now where you've been when they look at your instagram they'll see that you've got this property and you've got it pretty quickly so mm-hmm. yeah thank you so much and if people yeah. want to get hold of Thanks you how should me. they do it uh instagram of course so at jonathan m iwanu probably best to read that from i'm sure you'll tag me in because it's incredibly hard to spell my last name (laughs) so yeah i'm sure that's probably the best way um you can find everything on there awesome thanks jonathan yeah thanks Tej. bye then if you like this podcast connect with tej on facebook linkedin and youtube for more great content